In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. So the first person we're going to look at, and ever so briefly, is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, to see how the law and the gospel is contrary doctrines, in many ways, begins with him, at least the way it being expressed that way. And I'm trying to follow their language. I've, I've struggled with the way to express these things, and... I think I would do things a little bit differently in retrospect, where in From Shattered Substance, I continually throughout the book use the language of the law and the gospel dogmatically. And I don't think that's the most clear way of saying it, because when people hear, oh, you hold that dogmatically, they think you hold it strongly, you're persuaded, etc. But I mean dogmatically, I mean as doctrines. And so instead of saying doc- dogmatically, I'm intending in this class to say as doctrines or as contrary doctrines, just to avoid the confusion of the language. Uh, so I apologize if in the book that's not very clear. But the, where it comes from is here. Martin Luther says this, and pretty much everything I'm going to read to you today is in the book, is in From Shadow to Substance or in Andrew Woolsey's books, uh, book. And so the, the quotes, you have them uh, technically in, in your hands in the, in the reading. Martin Luther says this. He says, the law and the gospel are two contrary doctrines. <laughs> oh, that's where I got it. But here's what he means. He says, for Moses, and that's interesting or important that he's drawing this from Moses. For Moses, with his law, is a severe exactor. An exactor is someone who requires, who takes. Requiring of us that we should work and that we should give. So Moses takes and requires. We work, we give. And then he says, contrary wise, contrary doctrines, 
The gospel gives freely and requires of us nothing else but to hold out our hands and to take that which is offered. So one says, you must give, you must work, you must give, you must work. The other says, take this, take this. All you must do is hold out empty hands. And then he says, now to exact and to give, to take and to offer are clean contrary and cannot stand together. This, this is absolutely fundamental. It is necessary to, to hear how mutually exclusive law and gospel are for Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And, and he's right. It's, it's the simple concept of it's free or it's not free. You know, if I, if I give you $5 for lunch, then you take the $5. Okay, you just, you received from me. If I demand of you $5 for lunch, I'm requiring that you give, and it's one way or the other. And so the law and the gospel are contrary doctrines. And now we will see that same definition picked up and repeated again and again and again and again throughout Reformed, uh, the, the development of the Reformed tradition and Reformed theology. So let's move on to Heinrich Bullinger. Heinrich Bullinger. And we're looking for traces of these things, not because we've concluded that they're there and so we'll find them there, but rather because if you read them from the beginning forward, this is what you will find. And so do we find the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines in Heinrich Bullinger's theology? And the answer is yes. For example, he says this, Bollinger says, the law, therefore, is grounded upon works, whereunto it seems to attribute righteousness. So if you are righteous, the law will say, good job, you, you did it, you are righteous. And then he says, but because no man does in works fulfill the law, because no one actually does what the law requires, therefore is no man justified by works or by the law. But he says, the law is grounded upon works. And then he says, the gospel is not grounded upon works. For sinners acknowledge nothing in themselves but sin and wickedness. So he, he contrasts them. The law is grounded upon works. The gospel, he says, is not grounded upon works because sinners acknowledge nothing in themselves but sin and wickedness. And so the law and the gospel contrast as contrary doctrines is certainly active in Bullinger's thought. Now, Bullinger does discuss covenant theology to some degree, and he speaks about one covenant, one covenant of salvation that is differently administered. One covenant of salvation that is differently administered. Now, what does he mean about that? Well, listen to this quote. He says, in the very substance, truly, you can find no diversity. It is the same thing throughout history, Bullinger is saying, the covenant of salvation. The difference, the differences in the covenant, he says, consists in the manner of administration, in a few accidents and certain circumstances. Now, accidents are things that you can change about something without changing the thing itself, and circumstances likewise. So he's saying that you have the same covenant of salvation throughout all of history, but certain things that don't affect what it is change about it or change around it. And we can see, therefore, really the combination of the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines 
and yet also the law and the gospel as successive time periods. The same covenant of salvation, the same gospel, the same salvation passes through two successive time periods without being altered. The gospel does not alter in the time of the law and the time of the gospel, except for outward differences, uh, what he calls accidents and circumstances. So just to be super, super clear, this is the time of the law and the time of the gospel. <clears throat> and this is, you know, a, a path of righteousness. This is a path of righteousness. They're just opposite paths. If you're, if you're on the path of righteousness according to works, you're going one way. If you're on the path of righteousness according to the gospel, you're going the complete opposite way because they're contrary and cannot stand together. So in Bulger, we begin to see uh, one covenant of salvation that brings the gospel passing through two time periods, but not changing. It itself does not change. In the substance, he says, you can find no diversity. Now, what about the covenant of works? Well, you won't, you won't find the covenant of works until much later in Reformed thought, at least in name. But you can see the beginnings of it in writers as early as Bullinger. He says this, Bullinger says, For in the law, God declares what he, would <clears throat> what he would have him to do, man. So in the law, God declares what he would have man to do, that he may escape death and live in felicity and perfect happiness. For which cause also he provided that the law should be a plain and easy commandment. So let me read that again. He's talking about Adam in the garden. In the law, he declares what God would have Adam to do, that he may escape death and live in perfect happiness. For which cause he provided the law, that the law should be a plain and easy commandment. And he says he showed him the tree as a sacrament or sign of that, which he enjoined him by the giving of the law. So already in Bullinger, you see a law connected to... Uh, happiness, escape from death with a, a sacramental symbol, uh, an outward sign of the promises and the threats of the, of, of the law, but he does, not, he does not speak of it as a covenant necessarily. But the point is, he connects the law with a path of righteousness, an eternal path of righteousness, or a threat of death. And so the, in Bullinger, the gospel <clears throat> is already a covenant. The, the pieces are being put in place uh, for the law to be a covenant as well. And you can see precursors of that. And those contrary covenants are based on fundamental contrary paths of righteousness. We can also see uh, anticipations, foretastes of things that would later develop in covenant theology in Buller's, Bullinger's, excuse me, Bullinger's doctrine of the Mosaic uh, covenant, or, or at least the law as delivered to Moses. And, and listen to what he says about the people of Israel under Moses. He says, Although they were free in spirit before the Lord, yet notwithstanding they did in outward show differ little or nothing from very bond slaves. So they're free inwardly, but outwardly they appear like bond slaves, like servants, by reason of the burden of the law that lay upon their shoulders. So Israel is under a law that makes them look like bond slaves, though in spirit they are free. He, he's a little bit more specific. And this is, the, this is the important part that I want to, to point out as an anticipation of later developments. Bollinger says, it may be easily observed. Anyone can read this, anyone can see this, he says, that the law appoints out a certain land peculiarly separated from other nations 
and promises to the old fathers the possession of the same, so long as they did keep the law. But if they did transgress the law, then did it threaten that they should be rotted up, rooted up basically, and utterly cast out of that good land. So Bollinger says anyone can easily observe that under Moses, through the Mosaic law, a particular land has been apportioned for the Israelites, the enjoyment of which depends upon their obedience to the law. And the particular Baptists say, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And Abraham too. So long as they did keep the law. So the connection of the law to earthly blessings for the Israelites for a particular time uh, is already developing in the tradition, in the thought of Bullinger. And and, um, Bullinger is is very clear that the, the law appoints this certain land And so long as they keep the law, they enjoy the possession of it, and they will be cast out if they do not obey the law. So the law is controlling enjoyment of blessings in the land of Canaan uh, for Bullinger. But he doesn't doesn't speak of that as a covenant. He doesn't call it a covenant. Uh, We're simply seeing anticipations of what later theologians did call a covenant. And so what can we conclude from Bullinger? Uh, we can already we can see the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines as building blocks that he's using to, to construct things. Uh, we can see there's one covenant at work in Bullinger's thought. It's one covenant of salvation that is the same throughout history. It doesn't change. There's certain outward things that change in the development of history, but not the thing itself. He is looking at a special law arrangement with Adam. He's looking at a special law arrangement with Israel in Canaan. All of these things are anticipatory of later developments in covenant theology. And so from Luther and Bullinger onward, we have in many ways everything we already need to develop a complete Reformed covenant theology and even a particular Baptist covenant theology uh, already. Any, Any questions of clarification or repetition on Bullinger? No? Well, then let's move forward to uh, John Calvin. And I'm going to speed up a little bit. John Calvin also expressed the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines. I almost said the dogmatic difference, but we're trying to avoid that language. John Calvin talks about the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines. He says this, The righteousness of faith and works does so differ that when the one is established, the other must needs be overthrown. (laughs) So you're either seeking righteousness by by faith or by works. And if there is the one, there is not the other. They're mutually exclusive. They are clean contrary, as uh, Luther said. And so the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines, there it is in Calvin. The law and the gospel as successive periods. Calvin also refers to this very clearly. And he says that if, if you only ever contrast the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines, then you need to be corrected. He says that's true, but there's more. So he says, hereby also is their error convinced, in other words, corrected, overcome, who do never otherwise compare the law with the gospel, but as they compare the merits of works with the, with the free imputation of righteousness. So he says, if all you do is, is make this distinction, let me correct you. He says, although indeed this comparison of contraries be not to be rejected, although this is certainly true, he's saying, but the gospel did not succeed in place of the whole law, 
that it should bring any diverse means of salvation, but rather to confirm and prove to be a force whatsoever the law had promised and to join the body to the shadows. So he's saying we have to make a distinction in successive time periods that fits with the distinction between the law and the gospel as opposite periods, and you can't conflate the two. The Anabaptists really conflate the two. The Roman Catholics conflate the two each in different ways. And, and so Calvin is saying we have to maintain both of these distinctions, that the same gospel is active through the time periods of before Christ, after Christ, the law and the gospel. So he's affirming both of these distinctions. And in Calvin, as in Bullinger, you see one covenant of salvation throughout all history, uh, but diversely administered uh, or ministered uh, in, in Calvin's thought. He says, the covenant of all the fathers so differs nothing from ours in substance and in the matter itself that it is altogether one and the self-same. Our covenant of salvation is their covenant of salvation. He says, but the ministration is diverse. And so when Calvin talks about the diversity of that one covenant of salvation, he, he develops the language. We see the, the language of covenant theology developing under Calvin, and he talks about the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel, or the legal covenant and the evangelical covenant, the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel. But now we have to be really careful because John Calvin is not talking about the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel in this sense. He's not talking about them as contrary covenants, a covenant that takes you on the path of the law and a covenant that takes you on the path of the gospel. That's not what Calvin is dealing with. He's taking one covenant of salvation and talking about it under the time of the law and under the time of the gospel, just as Bollinger did. So in Calvin, when you read legal covenant, evangelical covenant, or covenant of the law, covenant of the gospel, don't think of those as contraries that are mutually exclusive, but as two phases, two historical periods of one covenant of salvation. The important, the important thing to point out, otherwise in many ways he's a develop, uh, just a clone of Bollinger, is that the language, the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel is a development. It's a development that is going to continue to affect things. And Calvin's successor uses the same language but in an opposite way. Not a way that contradicts Calvin, not in a way that is against Calvin, but simply his language is, is different from Calvin. So let's move on from, from Calvin, who has expanded the language to the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel as successive phases, to Beza, who again talks about the law and the gospel as contrary doctrines. He uses that word, uh, contrary doctrines. And I, I, I could quote to you to prove it, but the quotes are in the books. So let's move, let's move to what Beza is, the reasons why he is significant. He takes the two doctrines of the law and the gospel that are clean contrary, and then he uses those to talk about two contrary covenants, the covenant of the law and the covenant of the gospel, or the legal covenant and evangelical covenant. But in this case, Beza is talking about two opposite covenants, two opposite paths of righteousness. He says, the covenant of the law, which is do this and thou shalt live, and if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments as opposed to the gospel. So for Beza, the, the legal and evangelical covenants and the, or the law covenant and the gospel covenant are 
exclusively opposite they are con- because they are based on contrary doctrines. Now, one of the difficulties of the tradition, even to our very day, is that you're using, when you combine these two distinctions in covenant theology, you're using contrary language that, that points to contrariety, if that's the right word, uh, to talk about something that has continuity. Uh, and so if you talk about the law and the gospel as contrary covenants, you're using contrary language. And so you would assume that Beza's use, you're going to assume Beza's use when you read that language. The legal covenant, the evangelical covenant, oh, those are opposites, aren't they? Not necessarily because of this distinction. And, but it's, it's sort of one of the linguistic uh, obstacles that we just have to face in the way that we express these things. And if you're writing about covenant theology or preaching covenant theology, try to use language that is as clear as possible. Yes, we want to use the language of the tradition, but there may be ways in which we have to uh, circumvent or overcome difficulties in that language where we're affirming the same things, but with greater clarity or greater precision than, than has been used in the past. So Beza develops law and gospel covenants that are clean contrary one to the other. And then when he discusses the gospel covenant, the covenant of salvation, then he distinguishes it into two covenants or two testaments. The one is called the old, the other is called the new. And so, would anyone be upset if I erased these? Do you have them? Okay. Um, I just want to diagram a little bit what Beza is doing. it's in no way in opposition to Calvin. And these are covenants, law and gospel covenants. And they're opposite, therefore. And then Beza goes to the gospel covenant, the covenant of salvation, and he distinguishes that into the old and the new testaments or, or covenants, which are two historical, we're going to clarify this, these are opposite covenants, these are historical phases, I'll get out of your way. So for Beza, he starts out with the law and the gospel as opposite covenants, and then he distinguishes the gospel covenant into the Old and New Testaments, which are two phases of one covenant of salvation. He says, There was never but one covenant of salvation between God and man, if we consider the substance thereof, which is Jesus Christ. But in consideration of the circumstance, there are two testaments or covenants. The one is called the old, the other, the new. And so you have to be careful when you read these older sources to identify how they're using their terms, such as law and gospel, legal, evangelical, etc. Are they thinking of contrary doctrines? Are they thinking of successive time periods? It depends. It depends on how they use the language. They're usually all in agreement with each other. They may not be, but they usually are. And we can harmonize their language as long as we understand the distinctions operative beneath the language itself. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, the difficulties that you have opposite concepts expressed in the same language. (laughs) 
Opposite concepts expressed in the same language. Whose idea was this? This is a bad idea. The law and the gospel are opposite doctrines, but they're also two phases of one covenant that are not to be opposed to one another. Okay, that's, that's difficult. But they're, they're wrestling with biblical language of how Paul uses the word law to refer to a lot of different things. In some senses, it's opposite to the gospel. In some senses, it's successive to the gospel. So we can't really... Uh, I'm getting the spent. We can't inculpar. We can't uh, blame them uh, for for that because they're just trying to wrestle with the biblical biblical language. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.